Yechem. Okay, so what we did uh, in the first half of the year um, is we took a look at um, the several passages in the Nevi'im. Um, that was our main focus, and we ended by looking up at the, in the Gemara, and I'll very, very, very quickly just review what we did uh, because it's been a couple days. We looked at this passage in Yeshayahu and asked, what were the people fasting for? I talked about the time period that this piece of Yeshayahu was from, almost assuredly. Uh, what were they crying about? Were they fasting? Why is the reward for them doing the right thing uh, seeming to be an issue of sovereignty? And why does this echo so closely with Zechariah's words that we saw here when the, people, the delegation came and said, should we continue fasting uh, after the Beit HaMikdash has been rebuilt? We also saw this odd passage in Nehemiah when Ezra got up on Rosh Hashanah and read from the Torah and the people started weeping and mourning. And okay, we remember this. These are the passages there. And also the questions are listed there. We then looked at the Gemara uh, here in, um, on page four. We looked at the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah that uh, the end result, the final conclusion of the Gemara was that um, fasting on Som Gedalia, Shivasavatamas, and Asarbatevet halachically is presented as a voluntary act in times of um, not, pe not so sovereignty, but not persecution. So, in the middle, normal life. Um, and, quite, and we kind of asked, like, what kind of halachic solution is that? So, I'd like to go back now. Uh, to the story of Gedalia himself. I know it's two days after Tzom Gedalia, but, um, but as you'll see, I think the, the event looms much larger than we think. Uh, and I'll, I'll share with you that um, a, uh, a significant part of this part of the shear, not the second half, but the first part of this shear, is taken from a lecture that I heard at the Yemei Yun this year. The Yemei Yun I was able to listen to here in LA this year. I was all on Zoom from uh, Dr. Tova Genzel, who was um, uh, a great lecturer and a great writer. And she was kind enough then to send me the article she had written 10 years ago about this topic. Uh, and it's about an issue of Gedalia. So I'll start by asking you this question. And I'm going to assume that I know what the answer is. At least I'll tell you what I always thought it was. When was Gedalia killed? So you ask the average person on the street, okay, and the average person on our streets in LA is going to have no idea who Gedalia is. But you ask the average person on the street in Yerushalayim, when was Gedalia killed? They'll tell you the third of Tishrei. Okay, we're going to put that one to rest soon. But besides that, what year was he killed? And the instinctive reaction, you can nod your head if you agree that this is your instinctive reaction. The instinctive reaction is it was about two months after the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed. In other words, we assume that it's a continuum of events that two and a half years earlier on the 10th of Tevet, um, the siege started. Then two and a half years later in the summer, they broke through the walls. Three weeks later, they destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. And a few weeks later, Gedalia was killed. That's kind of the assumption. Bill is shaking his head and he's absolutely right to shake his head because I'll, I'll show you, and this is one of Gendel's main point, is that Gedalia's death did not happen so immediately. I'm going to actually pin a time on it that I'm assuming uh, that I think is a pretty safe assumption, and that is two years, but I'll show you why, why I think that. 
Let's start with the story of Gedalia itself. The story shows up in two places and is hinted to in a third, all from the same time period, from the end of the period of the first commonwealth, as we call it, the Beit HaMikdash and the, and the rule of, of Yudah. Now remember the, the events in 597 BCE, uh, Bavel had um, conquered Jerusalem, had left the Beit HaMikdash standing, had left the Kohanim in place, had left the, the, the common clay of the population there, and had taken the aristocracy and the king off to Bavel um, and had installed a vassal king named Matanya, changed the name to Tzidkiyahu. We talked about that. They, uh, Tzidkiyahu rebelled against Bavel by signing a treaty with Egypt, listen to bad advice, and, uh, and in 588, BCE, so nine years later, the uh, Bavel came and put a chokehold around the city, the siege of Jerusalem, and the siege lasted two and a half years till the summer of 586 BCE. In the summer of 586 BCE, the Babylonians broke through the walls in the month of Tammuz, a few different dates in Tammuz. We have the 9th of Tammuz, 17th of Tammuz. We commemorate on the 17th of Tammuz. They broke through the walls. They spent the next few weeks destroying the city. And finally, somewhere between the 7th, 9th, and 10th of Av, they destroyed everything, including the Beit HaMikdash, there's Tisha B'Av. That's all in 586. What happened afterwards is recorded here in, in source 4. So the remnant that was in Yehuda, Nebuchadnezzar left there. So he did not do what the, what the Assyrians had done, which was a complete population transfer, but rather he left people there. So he appointed this Gedaliahu, um, who is Ben Achikam Ben Shafan. That name is important for us. We'll see why. Uh, he appointed him as um, sort of in charge, as the governor over these Jews. So he was in charge of the remnant. Now, the reason his name is important to us is because we know he's not from royal stock. Unlike Sidkiyahu, who was from the, he was a son of Yoshiahu, but his grandfather was the scribe of the king. So he's from royal family, royal, he's from the court. Okay, now, So the, so the, the people, that's referring to Jews, had heard that Gedaliah was appointed and they came to Mitzpah. Mitzpah is a spot north of Yerushalayim. Very likely it's where Nebi Samuel is, north, north and west of Yerushalayim. And it's a place where Shmuel had gone to crown Shaul. So it has a history. And they came to him there. These four gentlemen came. They, they were leaders and they had their troop came. And we don't know yet what's going to happen, but there's foreshadowing that these guys are going to play a role. He took an oath to them. You know, these are members, the members of large clans in the community. And he takes an oath. Do not fear the Babylonians or the Babylonian soldiers. Meaning, live in the land. And be loyal to the king of Bavel, be a subject to the king of Bavel, they'll treat you well. In other words, new reality, we're now a vassal. 
But if you play your cards right, everything can go fine. Okay? That's what he said. Now, in the seventh month, notice it does not tell us a date. So this Yishmael, who was from some royal family, and he had ten henchmen with him, they assassinated Gedaliyahu. And all of the Jews and Babylonians who were with Gedaliyahu as part of his little court, they killed them. What happened? Now, everybody got up. Important people, unimportant people, all got up. Um, they ran away to Egypt. By the way, they dragged Yirmiyahu with them. They ran away to Egypt. They're afraid of the Babylonians because the Babylonians are going to come and say, what did you do? We appointed a, uh, a Jew over you and you assassinated him. They're going to kill these guys. So they all ran away. Okay, that's the story. Now, by the way, when did, it, when did this happen? So the simplest read of it is exactly what Radak says in Source 6, which is it happened on Rosh Chodesh. Because we typically, whenever we read in Tanakh, that something happened on a certain month, there's no date, the assumption is Rosh Chodesh. For instance, when we read in Shmot Yintet, we said, Bachodesh hashlishi, let's say B'nai Yisrael Yitzrayim, the third month, and Chazal assume that it's the first day of Sivan, which sets up the whole calendar for Matan Torah, because it never says sixth of Sivan. We assume that was the first of Sivan, and we count days from there. So the same thing here was very likely the first day of the month, which is the day we call Rosh Hashanah. Okay? Now, this is the entire story in Malachim. In Yirmiyahu, there are three chapters devoted to Gedaliah, and we, I'm, I'm going to show you a couple selections. First of all, you can see in Source 5 exactly what we just saw in Malachim. Right? You see the same thing by Bachodesh Ashvi'i, by Yishmael ben Netanyahu, and Shama and Zeram Luchav, Rabbi Melech Vasran Ashimito, Gedaliah, and Chikam Mitzpah. We don't hear in Malachim as they first they sat and had a meal with him. Then, same piece. He killed all of them. He killed all the people there. Okay. Now, when did this happen? Again, we don't know, but we're going to get some information from an earlier chapter in Yirmiyahu, where the story of Yahu starts, chapter 40. Here we go. This is where Ramah is mentioned in Yirmiyahu, is Yirmiyahu being in Ramah, connected to what we heard last Sunday, last Sunday, called the Ramah Nishma, you know, in the Haftarah. He, was, he himself was in chains. Um, and uh, we go ahead. Now, I'm moving ahead because this is now, uh, take a look at, at Pasuk uh, Vav. Yirmiyahu comes to Mitzpah to Gedaliah. So Yirmiyahu now is on that scene with Gedaliah. Now, we heard this before. All the soldiers heard that Gedaliah had been appointed. We're getting a little bit of a broader picture. 
The Gedaliah had a whole group with him of people who had not been exiled. Okay, what's in the non-highlighted section is pretty much what we heard before, but watch this. What, watch what Gedaliah says to them. First of all, Pasuk Yod, Vani and Ni Yoshev Ba Mitzpah. I'm sitting in Mitzpah. To stand in front of the custom to come, meaning I've got a little bit of a capital, a little bit of a, of a center. This is where I am. This is where you come and great and, and congregate with me. Viatem, what does he tell them to do? And this is very telling. Isfu Yain Vikayitz Gather wine and summer fruit and oil. Put it in your vessels. And go sit in the cities that you've grabbed. In other words, the scene here is that this is the people who were not killed and were not exiled. And there's enough for them for to talk about them to them as a group. And he says that they should go collect wine. How do you collect wine? It means you go pick grapes and you make wine. And summer fruit, which is typically figs and dates, kites. And shemen means you're going to go collect olives and make olive oil. We'll see why that third one doesn't happen. And put it in your vessels and go live in the cities that you've grabbed, which means that there were a bunch of cities that were destroyed, the people were taken away, and now the people that are left are able to find places to live among the ruins, and they're settling there. And he's saying, go collect food and bring it there. Now, here's a question I want to ask you, and I'm going to take it off the share for a second. Here's a question I want to ask you. If you have a siege over a city, an invading army coming in and destroying everything, where are you getting grapes from? Where are you getting summer fruit from? Where are you getting oil from? And the simplest answer is, and I think, Bill, this is probably what you meant when you were shaking your head, is this is now a couple of years later. The Babylonians did what they did, and then they kept their garrison there. Gedalia is in charge. And in the meantime, they're starting to grow, and now we're at the next summer. This can't be the summer of Tishaba because that summer, there's no food. So we're now at the next summer. By the way, if he tells them, tells them to get oil, that means he's expecting there to be a fall because the olives are harvested in November in Kislev. So that means that the olive oil is only going to be available in December. So he's assuming that it's all going to be there. You'll see it doesn't exactly happen that way, but we'll go back to the share um, and, uh, and take a look at, the, at how this follows. The gam there are Jews who had run away or were living in Jordan. Moav Amon and Nedom is Jordan, South Jordan. And in other lands, they heard that the king of Babel had left a remnant of Yehuda and that Gedali was there. And look at Pesuk Yabet. Jews had been exiled or had been scattered to different places. They came back. And they came back to Yehuda, to Gedalia, at Mitzpah. And what do they do? They gather wine and summer fruit. Notice it doesn't say olive oil because it's not there yet, because the next thing that happens is Gedalia gets killed and then it's all over. And when does he get killed? In Tishrei. So gathering grapes could happen. Gathering summer fruit can happen. Gathering olives didn't happen, right? Which is, which is uh, with the timing. So what you see here in this passage uh, is that the time gap between the destruction and when Gedaliahu was killed is at least a year. I'm putting it more like two years, 
where there's enough time for new crops to grow. There's groups of people who are hearing about Gedalia and they're coming back. And by the way, they're not coming back on the 10th of Av. They don't hear about it on the 10th of Av. It takes time for news to travel and people are still shell-shocked. There was a siege around Jerusalem. The city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The royal house was destroyed. The king was taken away. His kids were killed in front of him. His eyes were poked out. All this terrible stuff happened. And the people weren't immediately getting news and saying, oh, let's go visit Gedalia. This is something that takes time. And they're coming from all around to come back. Okay, now what is their attitude towards being there? And this is the cruncher. We have to go to the third character. We have Malachim. We have Yirmiyahu. We have a third book from the period. And the third book from the period is a curious book because it is a remote book. And it is the book of Yechezkel. Yechezkel is a prophet who is in Babylonia. And here's the story in Yechezkel Lamed Gimel. Which means this is now January of 585 BCE. This is the 10th month, the fifth day of the 10th month, five days before Asar B'tevet. But it's now the 12th year of exile, which means the half a year after the Churban. So this is how long it takes. Um, a, a, a survivor comes from Yishalayim to tell me that the city has been destroyed. Imagine it took them five months to get the news from Israel to Bavel that the city was destroyed. Right? And then what happens? By Yada, by by Arab, God prophesies through me, now I open my mouth and here's what I said. Here's the prophecy. Because Yechezkel's in Bavel. The people living in these wasted cities. Remember what, what, what Gedalia told them? Go live in the cities that you've grabbed. The people who are living in these destroyed cities, Yisrael, in Israel, Omrim Lemor. This is what they're saying. This is what they have as the bumper stickers. This is their hashtag. Echad haya Avraham by Yerasha Ta'aretz. Avraham was just one man and he got the land. Ba'anachnu Rabin. This is a Kavachomer. We are many. What's many? 100, 200, 1,000, 5,000? We don't know. But they think they're many enough. Lanu nitna that we're going to inherit the land, which means what is the attitude of the people living under Gedalia? This is after the destruction. It says, we heard about the destruction, and then this is what the people are saying. What are the people under the Gedalia saying? We're going to inherit the land. There's enough of us to inherit the land. What does inherit the land mean? Does it mean we're going to overthrow the Babylonians, or we're going to stay here and set up a government, and then the Babylonians will leave? We don't know. But it certainly means that we are claiming a presence and at least an autonomy here in Israel. You understand that this is shall we say, mandate Palestine, if you will. So understand that the presence of these people in the land, from their perspective, is seen as the continuity of Jewish existence in the land and the building of ultimately returning to sovereignty. So God then says the following, this is what the message you should give to them. 
You're still spilling blood, and you're still, Adam Tochelu may refer to pagan rites, and you're involved in idolatry. You think you're going to get the land? You're standing on your sword, you've done terrible things. Adultery, you're going to inherit the land? It's a play on words. You in the ruined cities will die by the sword. The people on the fields are going to be eaten up. So that, that's his, that's his, his, rebuke, his rebuke to them. But the people there believe that they have a future. And the people there believe that, that their presence is meaningful. This does not happen in seven weeks. This does not happen in, in, in two months. This takes a few years of being settled in, of having a community, of having a plan, of having a governor, of having a future. Understand now how absolutely devastating the death of Gedalia was. And remember that the aftermath of the death of Gedalia was to run away to Egypt because you're afraid of the Babylonians. This is the end of Jewish presence in Israel. It is very possible that these people perceived Gedalia's death as being more of a tragedy than the destruction of the city and the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Because after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, they said, okay, but we're still here. Remember, we lived here for several hundred years without a Beit HaMikdash. We were here. We conquered the land. We're back in the land. We're still here. We're not leaving. But Gedalia's death was the end of it. I want to show you one other thing. In 1935, in Lachish, which always throughout the first temple period was a major center, in Lachish, this bula was found. A bula is a seal. This bula was found. And it reads, I put it in Ketavivri underneath, uh, written out. That's what you look at on here. Gedaliahu Asher al-Habayit. Gedalia, who's in charge of the bayit. And most scholars think that this is Argadalia. Now that means he was ruling long enough that he was able to put together a seal and that he was a person who was reckoned with as having a title, Asher al That's pretty powerful. The, they date this to 586 BC, which would mean that's the year that he was installed. So the sense here is that the presence went on longer and that... Um, the presence in the land went on longer, and that um, the uh, and that the uh, that the, the the crushing reality of Gedalia being killed um, really really had a tremendous impact. But now we have to get back to our sources because I left you with a bunch of questions uh, the other day, and we got to deal with them. When was Gedalia killed? So Gedalia was killed on Rosh Hashanah. In practice, what did the rabbis at a later point do with that fast? They moved it so that it wouldn't be on Yom Tov. They moved it to the first day after that Yom Tov, the third of Tishrei. Okay. Let's go back to our sources. The first source we looked at was Yeshayahu. And as I mentioned to you, this part of Yeshayahu is from the beginning of the Second Temple period. And I asked the question, the people were fasting, and they were crying out to God, and God wasn't answering them. 
what were they fasting for? I asked that question last in last year. What, what, were they, what was it? What were they missing? The answer is very straightforward. They're missing sovereignty. They've got the Beit Hamikdash, but they're under the Persians. They're praying for sovereignty. They're praying for a restoration of what they had. And what are they doing? They're fasting. And when are they fasting? They're fasting on the first of Tishrei. And they're crying out to God. And they're saying, you see, we're fasting. We're bowing our head over. I'm, I'll tell you why I think it's the first of Tishrei. And we're, and we're uh, wearing sackcloth and ashes, etc. And you're not answering. And what's God's answer? God's answer is the same answer that Zechariah has, which is, you want to get back to where you were, you got to fix what was broken. So if you want to get back to sovereignty, you've got to fix how you treat the poor and how you treat the hungry and how you treat the naked and how you treat the homeless. That's the whole message. And then what's the reward at the end of that? If you do all those things, you will be sovereign. That's the end. That's the promise. You will have sovereignty. And so now we roll to Zechariah, where we now understand what happened in Zechariah. Remember in Zechariah, the delegation asked about the fifth month. Shall I, shall I weep in the fifth month? And God's answer first was, you're fasting and weeping in the fifth and seventh month. And he says, you got it all wrong. The issue isn't fasting and weeping. The issue is fix what was broken. Why does God mention the seventh month? Because these are two separate fasts. There's the fast about the Beit HaMikdash, which is Asar B'Tevet, Shivasa B'Tamuz, leading up to Tishavah. That's one track. Then there's the other track, which is Tzom Gedalia, which is the fast over the loss of sovereignty. And the people are fasting on both those. And he says, you don't get it. you you got to fix what caused the problem. And then there's the whole message that ultimately leads to the promise that all four fasts, meaning the fast both for the Mikdash and for the sovereignty, will ultimately become festive days. But that's going to happen when you've also gotten to the point where the rest of the world comes around and says, bring us to your God, teach us, etc. So now I want to take you to this passage, passage number two, which I always found to be quite mysterious. In the Chem Yechet. Ezra gets up on Rosh Hashanah and he reads from the Torah and it's explicitly Rosh Hashanah and he reads from the Torah and we find out that Nehemiah says to the people it's a holy day, don't mourn, don't weep. Why? They're all weeping. Why are they weeping? I think it's very simple because today's a fast day. They're weeping. What are they weeping about? They're weeping for the loss of sovereignty. Here we are. The Beit HaMikdash is built. Ezra's there. Beit HaMikdash is built. But we're still under the Persians. We're not independent. So they're weeping. Why are they weeping on that day? Because that's the day Gedalia was killed. How does that fit? So I'm going to ask this question. What is Rosh Hashanah called in the Torah? It's called Yom Truah. What's a Truah? A Truah is a cry. It's not called Yom Tkiah. It's not called Yom Shvarim. It's called Yom Truah. Zichron Truah. A Truah is a cry. It can be a war cry. It can be a cry of, of ululating sadness. It could be, a, it could be a, a war whoop, like you hear in Yehoshua Vav. But it's a war. It's a cry. So what do we know about Rosh Hashanah? The Torah says, Yom Truah Yelachem. 
So if I'm part of that community, I can easily understand when we were home and we were sovereign and there was a Beit HaMikdash, this was a day of shouting out of joy. And now what happened? So very likely during the two generations that we were in Bavel, the day was commemorated as a day of screaming and fasting and sadness. They come back and Ezra reads from the Torah, they're reminded that today is that day and they start weeping and they're mourning. And by the way, take a look at it. I'll take you back to the page. It's wild. If you take a look at it, the Levim have to tell them, stop, shashtil, stop mourning. It's a holy day. It's a happy day. Don't be sad. You have to, and by the way, and, and telling, he tells them, how do you fix it? How do you celebrate it properly? Send food to people who don't have. You understand how that echoes Zechariah's message? You have people in your community who don't have food. Send your food to them. Celebrate with them. Today's a happy day. But this is how you're going to fix it. And so the fasting and weeping in Yishayon Nunchet, the fast, the weeping and crying in Nechem Yechet are all part of the same picture. They're all the way that that day was commemorated up until then. And Ezra has to fix it. It was commemorated as a fast day because Gedalia's assassination essentially was the end of Jewish presence and the end of hopes for any sovereignty. And now that they were back, they're weeping over the fact that they're back and they're Beitamikdash, but Nebuch, they're under the Persians. Nebuch, they're not in charge. They're subjugated. They have to pay taxes to a foreign uh, foreign uh, government. They have to have a room in the Beitamikdash called Shushan Habira, right? They have a, a Lishka in the, in the Azar called Shushan Habira. And they're praying and hoping for independence so that the Nevim have to come and tell them, no, this is a happy day. This is a day of celebration. And to, to turn the truah from a truah of sadness into a truah of declaration of God being king. So what we've seen over the course of these two shiurim is we started with a passage in Yeshayahu with a fast that we couldn't really figure out, a message that didn't seem to fit, and a promise that was it didn't seem to be connected either. We then saw a passage in Nehemiah where the people are weeping and we have no idea why they're weeping and they're mourning and weeping on the Rosh Hashanah. They're not weeping the next day when they hear the Torah, but on the first of Tishrei, they're weeping and mourning. And then we saw the passage in Zechariah with the whole message of how they have to fix things. We then took a look at the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, which essentially said, Ratsu or Lo Ratsu. Why is that? Because that's Zechariah's message. Zechariah's message is, you fast or not fast, that's up to you because it's not the fasting that's the issue. It's fixing the problem that's the issue. And that's up to you. Tishabav, you're right. And that will take a much bigger revolution to, to, to change. But the other fast days, you can fix them. Ratsu mitanim, ratsu mitanim. They're up to you to fix. And therefore, essentially, they become voluntary days, not voluntary in the sense of leniency, but voluntary in the sense of obligation. You have to make the right choice of how to deal with this day. Don't just fast and move on. Fast and make it change you and have you change your society in order to fix it. So what we did today was we looked in the second year was we looked at the passages that support the idea that the, the Gedalia's presence was not only seven weeks, that it was a year or two perhaps. We saw the Bula, we saw the text in, especially in Yechezkel that seemed to indicate that. 
And, uh, and I shared with you Dr. Genzel's argument that it was several years. And building on that, I suggested that what happened is Gedalia's assassination and the fleeing to Egypt and the end of any Jewish government in Israel sent such tremendous shockwaves that the people commemorated that day for two generations in Bavel. They looked in the Torah, it's a Yom Truah. That's how they commemorated it. And they wept and they fasted and they mourned. And then when they come back, that's how they react when, when Ezra gets up to read from the Torah. And he says, no, 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 it's supposed to be a happy day. And hopefully now we bring it all together and understand the significance. So when when we hear that old adage that we started the first year with, which was, well, would Gedalia fast for me? Understand that Gedalia represents, besides the fact that Hamzal says it's Sadiq and Mitat Sadiqim, that Gedalia represented uh, a uh, um, Jewish independence and the presence of the people on the land. And it was a presence that was so strong that the people thought they will be able to conquer the land. That's what they said. And Yechez God to tell them, until you fix your ways, you can't do that. So Amir Tzashem, it's uh, something that we will uh, take to heart and make sure that the fast days that we have are days in which we not only undergo internal change, but that we try to affect external change in the society around us so that we can fix what was broke that caused that fast. Yom Kippur is a different story, but also we have to fix, but it's a different kind of fixing. So I want to wish everybody a Gmar Chatima Tovah, and a very meaningful day. Hydrate yourselves well in advance. It's supposed to be quite hot here, but we should all come out of this um, um, healthy and, and good. And, uh, and give me one second, and I want to, um, right. So everybody, again, I'm gonna allow in a second, I'm gonna open up the, the mic, uh, but I just wanna wish everybody a Gmar Chatimah